Hey, how's it going, guys? My name is Julian Castle, and I got Sam Prem today in the building. He is going to be doing a podcast with us. Sam is also known as Sam Faster Freedom. He's a real estate investor and entrepreneur. He currently owns $42 million in real estate and has $25 million in debt. We're going to get into it. Um, apart from that, he also has a real estate flipping company that flips over 250 houses a year. And so this podcast is going to share with you what is real estate investing? What is wealth creation and financial freedom with real estate? Welcome to A-List Conversations, where we have real talk with experts on how they build the skills, mindset, and network to become an A-lister and how you can too. I'm your host, Julian Castle. Let's get down to business. So let's rock and roll. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Doing real well. Excited to to dig in and try to hopefully uh, open some people's eyes and let them see the power of real estate. Amazing, man. So, you know, as always, you made, you made your name in the real estate world as Sam Faster Freedom. Did you always want to be a real estate investor growing up? No, not really. See, I was on that normal path. So I was you know, my dad was an engineer, worked for the same company, Boeing, for 40 years. My mom was a teacher. Like, I grew up thinking that I was going to have a W-2 job and retire at 65. Like, that was my goals, my thoughts, my dreams, ambitions. I didn't really have many ambitions beyond that. I was too busy being a knucklehead, playing sports, and trying to stay out of trouble kind of thing. So I, I went to college and graduated and was on that path and um, quickly saw that I was wanting something more. I wanted to be able to have a little bit of more control of my time. I wanted to have a higher ceiling of income. I wanted to be able to be challenged and have that competitive edge um, by, you know, being your own boss and an entrepreneur kind of thing. So quickly, I realized that real estate was the best way to do that. I didn't have like some epiphany. I just uh, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a great book to open people's eyes on assets and real estate. And just um, know, I noticed that a majority of wealthy people were involved in real estate some way, somehow 90% of millionaires are made through real estate. So um, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel or do something completely off the wall, I said, I'm just going to do what most wealthy people do invest in real estate. So I started to do that on the side and then it quickly snowballed into what we're looking at today. That's amazing, man. What a great epiphany sort of that you had early on, you know, right at college. And I just want to ask, you know, did you, at the beginning, did you start off with a lot of money? Because a lot of people here might not have a lot of money. And so this is a, you know, a big sticking point for them. Yeah. So I, I own, um, as you mentioned, 40, $46 million worth of real estate earlier. And I haven't used any of my own money to buy it. The beautiful thing about real estate is you need money to acquire it, but you do, it doesn't have to be your own money. It's, it's called leverage, and it's one of the few investment classes that leverage is normal and leverage is um, the way to do it. Like you're not going to borrow $20,000 to buy $100,000 worth of stocks. That's, that's not smart. However, you can borrow $20,000 to buy $100,000 worth of real estate. So leverage is key. And I didn't have enough money to do it with my own money when I got started. So I was forced to use other people's money. And now I've seen the power of that and the scalability of that. So I continue to do that because I still want to grow and scale. But for most people, me included, when I got started, it's either no real estate or borrow money to buy real estate. So I'm going to borrow money to buy real estate because I didn't have my own money to do it. Real quick, guys, no ads here, just real stories. The only ask I have is you spread the word. Rate, review, or share this podcast. It may inspire someone out there to reach new heights. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And for a recap for the audience here, Sam started investing in 2015, which he had a $200,000 portfolio then. 
today he now has $42 million and it's, you know, it's 46. So it's actually uh, 2024. And so there's a lot of spread in between. I saw one of the tweets, you know, you went from, you know, 5.2 million in 2017 to like 10.7, you know, the next year after that. And so just kind of give us a little breakdown real quick. Like, how did you scale like so exponentially, you know, from from these different years? And just to recap, we will we'll get more into it later. Yeah, in general, the recap of it is I was able to develop relationships with banks and, and different people. Like it's not something where it happened relatively quickly. You're right. But three, four years in is when it really started to scale because I developed relationships with private lenders and hard money lenders and banks and contractors. So I was setting everything up kind of unintentionally. I just was trying to do my best for a few years. And then when bigger deals started coming across my plate, I had the funding, I had the resources, I had the contractors to make them work. You know, a lot of people want to go from zero to 10 million in one in your first year. That That's really hard to do. But if you set things up, when those opportunities are presented to you, you can take advantage of them because it's pretty hard. You know, I buy single family rentals, one offs all the time because I have a company that buys them and acquires them. But in order to scale, you're going to have to buy an apartment complex or I bought a 42 pack of houses bought a 28 pack of houses, bought an 11 pack of houses, and then a bunch of single families, singles off the bat, and then bought, you know, six apartment complexes. So in order to scale and grow, you have to buy bigger chunks with more zeros on them, but it takes a while to set the foundation to be able to do those things. That's amazing. Okay. So we're definitely going to touch base, touch in today about the foundations. Um, and, and so one of the things that I want to get into, uh, you know, talk about is what are you doing now to help people succeed with real estate. I just want the audience to know right off the bat what you're doing and how they can benefit you from from you in the future. Yeah, I mean, so the main thing I do is social media. So I have, you know, 2.8 million followers on social media between TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, um, X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's the main thing I do that I just provide quality information. That's how I've been able to get that many followers. Um, I, you know, I mumble a little bit. I slur a little bit. I'm not the most articulate. You know, I do an OK job, you know, because I've answered questions enough times. But it's not like my I would didn't grow up, you know, wanting to, to do social media and be in front of a camera. But just I was yeah. doing some cool things. And then I started to talk about it and then get garnered a lot of people's interest. And then I started to continue to talk about it. So the biggest thing is just following me on social media. I give away more free content than anybody out there. I think that's the reason for the growth. And then I also am actively doing it. A lot of people make money in real estate and then they move on to social media and coaching and branding. And there's way more money in the short term in social media and coaching and branding. So they stop doing real estate. So they kind of lose that connection that people came there for. I don't do that. I do the coaching. We'll talk about that later, but I am, we're buying 300 houses a year. You know, I'm buying millions of dollars worth of assets every single year that I keep and millions of dollars assets that I wholesale and flip. So I have a team that is actively buying and I'm talking about it on social media. So that's kind of where a lot of people have that disengagement is they made the, they started in real estate, they talk about it, social media, the branding, the deals, the podcast, the money, the coaching. There's so much money in that. The margins are so much better. The risk is so much lower that that's where they gravitate to. And yes, I'm doing that, but I also didn't forget my roots. I, I, I am continually grounded in the real estate active game every single year. That's incredible, guys. So you're hearing it now. He is an active real estate investor. He's not just some poser trying to talk about real estate. So so let's get into it. So. First thing is first, you know, you got to pick a market when you're in real estate. So how did you set up your business so that you pick the right markets to continue to grow in? 
Yeah, so it's kind of stumbled into it, but I, I invest all just locally here in St. Louis where I live. So real estate is such a big industry. A lot of people, when they're sitting on the outside, they're like, which market do I pick? And like, how many markets do I want to have? And they, they don't think it through fully, understandably, because they're not in it. But somebody that's yeah. in it, what you, what's in my suggestion, and there's a million different ways to do it. I'm not one of those people that tell you you have to do it my way. But my suggestion would be to pick the market that you live in ideally. So like I'm in St. Louis. So when a hedge fund comes to buy in St. Louis, I know what areas are good. I know what areas are bad. I know what's going on. I know uh, I kind of have, it's almost like having insider information and I can make decisions that some algorithm of a hedge fund can't. Similarly, whatever market anybody's in, investing in that market is um, the best because you're going to have on the street knowledge. You probably grew up there, lived there for a while. So you know things that other people don't. They're trying to invest from the outside. Now, the only caveat to that is if you're in San Diego, it's pretty hard to buy single family rentals with the Burrs method like I do here in St. Louis. So you can make yeah. money investing in any market in the country, just not every strategy is set up for every market. Now, 90 something percent of markets work as flipping, wholesaling and renting. They work great for all. But there's the Californias, the New Yorks, the Hawaii's that are tough to buy single family rentals with the Burrs method. So um, in those markets, people usually do invest remotely, but I still think you should have a presence in your local market. And California is great for flipping, great for wholesaling. Yeah, the taxes are high, but um, you know, everybody dogs on it, me included, but there's still a lot of people that live there with money. So, um, you know, the, it can work in any market, just not every strategy is best suited for every market, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. Okay, so you guys got the, the market strategy there. And, um, and so let me ask you, how do you create deal flow? You know, real estate is a big deal flow game. And so obviously you got to have an influx all the time of deals that you can be looking at. How do you create that for yourself so that you're always looking at new deals and always looking at opportunities that you can invest in? So there, there's two ways to get deal flows and I'll cover both of them quickly. The number one way that everybody on here should start with and that our number one lead source is connecting with other people and networking. So we're going to buy like, or we, I guess it's 24 now, but in 2023, we bought like 60 houses from real estate agents. So we're constantly talking yeah. with real estate agents and getting in front of them and letting them know, hey, you, you know, you're going to sell a ton of houses this year. I'm not going to be able to help you on most of them, but that hoarder house, that distressed house, that fixer up or that handyman special, that house that won't pass occupancy, that house that has been updated in 60 years and won't pass code. Bring those to me. I'll give your client a fair cash offer and you can list it and it'll be a pain in the butt or they can go with the cash offer. Let them decide. Um, and you get paid either way. The agent does. So there's those things. There's other wholesalers. So there's people that go out and find the deals. You contact them. Um, and then there's just connecting with people that, you know, come across distressed houses. We buy a lot of houses from like, um, you know, uh, senior care facilities and places like that where somebody comes and wants to, you know, their parents are moving into that senior care facility and they need to sell their house. It has been updated in 50 years. So there's the networking side that takes time, energy, effort, but it's a constant gravy train. You get 10 or 15 agents and wholesalers bringing you deals. You're always going to have something across your plate. But then there's a the more proactive but expensive side of marketing. You can send direct mail. You can do Facebook ads. You can do pay-per-click ads on YouTube. You can get on the radio. You can get on TV. You can you can do outward-reaching marketing that is more expensive, but uh, you know it's a numbers game. Will lead to leads. So it's just kind of depending. Most people do a mixture of both. We definitely do a mixture of both of the 300 houses we bought last year. 
probably 150 of them were from marketing and 150 of them were from, you know, networking. So you can do both. And I would suggest, especially if you're looking to buy 10 houses or less, which is a lot of houses, I don't think you should spend a dollar on marketing. I think you should spend your time connecting with other people in the space that come across the deals. That's amazing. That's an amazing breakdown, guys. Definitely. Um, Sam knows his stuff. And so I, I did look at some of your deals. You know, you do a lot of creative deals. Of course, you have no money. So who is your best friend in this game? Private money lenders, right? And so tell us a little bit about how you are able to find these private money lenders, incentivize them to do deals with you and how you compensate them so that everybody's happy in a win-win situation. Yeah, so private lenders are like your, the secret sauce of all of this. You can do this with hard money. You can do this with your own money, but you're going to come up against limits um, and you're going to you know, be limited. Assuming I just kind of assume that everybody wants to get to the financial freedom that's listening to this. I just assume that everybody wants to scale to a certain level. I want to own a billion dollars in real estate. I don't assume that everybody wants to own a billion dollars in real estate, but I would assume somebody at least listening wants to buy five, 10, 15 rentals, something along those lines, or, or, you know, do that many flips or wholesales. So um, private lenders are the key to all of that. So a lot of people go wrong with private lenders because they look in the wrong spot. It took me about six months to find my first private lender. And most people give up after month one or two. So people get confused because they're looking in the wrong place. If I'm on, if I'm, uh, you know, looking for a baseball on a golf course, I'm not going to probably find a baseball. I'll find golf balls. So I, you need to be in the right arena when you're looking for private lenders. And most people are looking in the wrong in the wrong place. Most people, when they look for private lenders, they look for a rich parent or a rich grandparent or somebody that has $10 million in the bank that's living on a yacht, you know, that, that's, you know, that's in their eighties. That's just, you know, raking in money and has, you know, $50 million at their disposal. Yes. Those are great people to have. And if you have a rich parent or grandparent, great, use them. It works for them. You're doing them a favor. They're not doing you a favor. However, that's not realistic for most people. The prototypical private lender, and again, of course, there are ranges. There's private lenders that are 22, and there's private lenders that are 80. But the prototypical private lender that you should be pursuing is somebody in their 40s or 50s, somebody that has a W-2 job, a corporate job. They have been living in the same house for the past 20 years. So they have equity in their personal house. They have an IRA that they've been contributing to. They have a 401k that their employees are matching. They have money market accounts. They have CDs. They just are people, grownups with jobs and kids, and they are looking at retirement around the corner in the next 10 or 15 years, and they're wanting to diversify their portfolio. If somebody in the, somebody's 51, once retire, you know, their late 50s, early 60s, they have a few million dollars between their IRA, between equity in their house, between a money market account, between cash. You're not asking for all of it. You're just trying to help them diversify. You're help, trying to help them self-direct their IRA and give you 100 grand. You're trying to let them use some of their equity from their personal house and give you 50 grand. You're just trying to get a chunk of money from them as a, you know, kind of as a diversification tool for them that will help them, that will really, really help them, um, you know, do this. So it's it's something that is um, just, you know, people, again, they, they text everybody on their phone. That then they don't know about somebody that has $10 million cash. Well, nobody does. So you need to look yes. at the normal everyday people that want to diversify their current investment portfolio that have a little bit of extra money that are looking to invest in real estate through you and you're giving them an eight to 12% return. So you're giving them a very, very solid return that you can personally guarantee that's backed by real estate. A lot of people say they're not going to give me money. There's no skin in the game. No, the skin in the game is you're guaranteeing their return and they, they can put a lien on the asset. 
they're lending you money on. So you don't need to give them another house. You need to, they just have rights to the house that they're lending money on until you pay them back. And that was a lot there. And honestly, this is, this is the pitch for anything. I have a free training about it. If you go to freefundingwebinar.com, I don't collect your phone number or email address. So this doesn't even benefit me. It's legitimately free. If anybody wants to learn more, it's called freefundingwebinar.com. I don't collect your information. We're not going to blow you up with phone number, email address, but it's an additional resource. It's like 20 minutes. That's probably a little bit more detailed than what I can give here. That's amazing. Yeah, Sam, thank you so much for that. And so for the listener, the private money lender really comes in and puts in the money that you need as a down payment so that you can do the deals. Now, for the rest of the money that needs to be funded, you know, for the deal, can you tell us about like how you contact local banks? Like who do you work with that also funds in the rest of the money so that this deal can be done, you know, 100% financed or, or, you know, as much as possible, you know? Yeah. So if you're talking a single family rental, which I think is the place most people starts, there's so many more houses than apartment complexes or even duplexes or quadplexes. A single family house is a good place to start. Even if you want to graduate to 100 unit apartment complexes, single families is just a good place to start, at least do a few of those. So assuming that's where you're starting, um, the private lender is going to fund your purchase and your rehab. So a a couple private lenders or one private lender or even a hard money lender, you can mix a lot of different sources. I don't want to confuse it, but you can borrow money from some type of short term lender to buy and fix up that house. Then you're going to get a loan from a bank, a small local bank. Um, These are your community banks. These are not your Bank of America's, not your commerce banks. These are your community banks that will lend you money based on the new value of the asset. So for let's keep it super simple. All right. So, Julian, so I buy a house that's $50,000 that needs $25,000 worth of work. So I need $75,000 to buy and repair a house. I borrow $75,000 from a private lender to buy and fix up the house. I bought it at a discount. It was distressed. And I saw I created more value. Pretty simple. You go to a small local bank, they'll appraise that property. And if you added value, there's equity in there. So let's say the property appraises for $100,000. I owe my private lender $75,000. The property appraised for $100,000. Very logical and normal. The, the small local bank will give me a loan for 80% of that $100,000. So that small local bank will give me a loan for eighty grand. So now I owe the bank 80 grand, but the rent pays the bank at back every month because it's a mortgage and that $80,000 is a check. And I pay my private lender their 75 grand plus five grand in interest. So they got their money back. They gave me 75 grand. I gave them back 80 grand. They made 12% on their money because it was out for four or five months. They're happy. They're good. They did nothing and made 12%. And now I owe the bank money, but it's over 30 years and the rent pays the bank. And all owning expenses. So it's kind of, it's like a way to use two different funding sources and use a distressed asset as the vehicle to own that asset. And I didn't buy it and I'm not maintaining with none of my own money. Private lender bought it and then a a tenant is doing the maintaining as far as the the payment goes. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's amazing. So uh, now that you have the, the person that is, you know, loaning you the money and you got the bank and they gave you the cash or refinance and everything. You're now in the game, right? You have a property that's being paid down by the tenant. And of course you have to budget in for some expenses and, and, and repairs and somewhat, but this is going to be collecting uh, equity over time and potentially even paying you a cash flow, right? And so from, from that, how, how much does someone need to do? Like for the person that's like, I have zero properties right now, I wanna collect $10,000 a month. Like how much of that, does someone need to do in order to be able to collect $10,000 a month and potentially lose, you know, potentially quit their job, their, their W-2? 
Yeah, so this is where I screwed up a lot at first. Um, I tried to replace my W-2 income with rental income, and that's not going to happen, um, especially if you're using yeah. none of your own money. So it's like one of those things where like they can't both be in the same reality of I don't have any money, but I'm trying to quickly replace my income with rental income. If you have money, you can put 20% down and scale quickly. And then maybe, but for most people, they don't have the money to, you know, buy 20 houses and putting, you know, 20% down. They don't have a million bucks to put down, 2 million bucks to put down. So if you don't have that, you're going to have to um, slowly gain that cash flow. Because if you're buying real estate using none of your own money, like I just mentioned, the Burrs method, you're going to make two, 300 bucks a month cash flow, which isn't like super sexy, but guess what? That property goes up in value every day. The tenant pays down the mortgage, the principal, and you get tax-free cash flow. So I, I call it the passive wealth trifecta. I make $10,000 a day because I own enough real estate that every single day, my real estate goes up in value about $4,000. Every single day, my principal balance on my 25 million in debt gets paid down about three, $4,000. And then every single yeah. day I make $1,500 a month or a day cash flow based on all of it. So I know it's a big number, but you see it, it can add up pretty quickly 10 grand a day without me doing a thing. It's passive. So I call it the passive wealth trifecta. So that's where buying rentals comes into place. It, 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 it takes a while, even with me now making 40, 40, 50 grand a month in rentals, but I own 300 of them. So it takes a long time to get that active income. So what I tell most people is you're going to make two, 300 bucks a month doing buying real estate, none of your own money, the way I do, the way I teach you, the way a lot of other people teach you, you need to come up with other active income streams. If you want to quit your job, ideally, you're going to be wholesaling, flipping and buying rentals. There's no reason you can't do all three. They're all the same thing. When you're buying a rental, you're finding a distressed property and you're rehabbing it and you're renting it. When you're wholesaling, you're finding just distressed property. So that's part of the process. When you're flipping, you're finding distressed property and rehabbing it. So either way, you're finding distressed property. So what I tell people is find distressed properties, wholesale some, flip some, rent some. If you do that, you will be building an active income stream that you can quit your job, the wholesaling and flipping, but you can also be building a passive wealth income stream that eventually will set you up for, for life because you're buying rentals and holding on to them. Hey, real quick, guys, no ads here, just real stories. Are you thinking of owning multifamily properties? Let's do it together. Join my multifamily cohort. We'll learn from experts and help each other buy that first multifamily property. Head over to multifamilycohort.com. That's amazing. Gotcha. So so when it comes to the, you know, you're always, fi always finding the distressed uh, houses, right? The distressed sellers and everything. And even apartment buildings, right? Because you also invest in that. Um, what it, when you're wholesaling? Because this is where the part that comes in that people need to make a living in order to continue to invest in real estate. So let's say either they pick wholesaling or flipping. Um, what is the best dispo strategy and how to get solid buyers for your deals? Yeah. So for I mean, if you are wholesaling and you're coming across a good asset, like the the deal will come. Like it, it's the easiest thing in the world is to sell a good wholesale deal. Um, now, obviously, yeah. you want to build a great buyer's list, but worst case scenario, you put it on your local Facebook groups, your local meetups, you shop at your local meetups, you will sell it for sure. Now, will you maximize it? Probably not for a while because you're going to want to build a good solid buyer's list, build relationships with good wholesalers, um, flippers, landlords, investors, you know, people that actually close on properties. You're going to want to build relationships with them, but that takes a while. Worst case scenario, you don't know anybody that could buy distressed houses. Post it on your local real estate investing Facebook group. 
post it on your local bigger pockets forum post it you know go to your local meetups and shop it you will 100 percent sell it so again like everything else that comes along with real estate or life or wealth building whatever it is things take time people want things to happen overnight and that's just not how the world works that's why so few people actually get to where they want to go so just know that you're going to be building a buyer's list. It's going to take you six months, 12 months to build like a solid buyer's list of cash buyers. They're going to buy on the spot. But in the meantime, shop on the local Facebook group, shop in local meetups and start to build those connections. And, you know, if it's a good deal, you're going to make a profit on it. Could you have made another couple grand, you know, in six months from now? Yeah, but that's not reality right now. So you just take what you can get and move on and continue to do deals. Beautiful. Incredible. So. Um, thank you for this information, uh, Sam. I want to talk about a little bit that's the meat and potatoes of this whole real estate investing thing, which is how do you value the deals and how you spot the diamonds in the rough? Can you give me a breakdown briefly what you look at? How can you spot them quickly and what kind of uh, patterns or have you developed that allow you to do that quickly? Yeah, so looking at a deal. Yeah. So looking at a deal quickly, it's called the max allowable offer formula. MAO formula is what it's called. And what it is, is it is a um, formula that you can use. And it's the same formula that all the wholesalers use, all the agents use, um, all the investors use. So it's a, like kind of a uniform system. Um, but it's uh, it's ARV times 75 percent minus repairs, 70 or 75 percent. So I'll, I'll break it down quickly. So ARV times 70 percent, let's say, minus repairs. So your ARV is what the property is worth after it's fixed up. It should not be that hard to find. Um, what you do is let's say you're looking to buy a three bed, two bath, 1500 square foot house. So what you do is you go find three, three bed, two bath. 1500 square foot houses that have sold in the past few months that are like retail ready on the open market flipped or just, you know, nice houses. That's what your house is going to be worth after it's fixed up because that's what just the house recently sold for. And that's how they value houses. What is the most recent house sold for the most recent few houses? That's what the market price is. So that's what my house is going to be worth. So uh, that's what you do. You find three houses that have sold that are the same size and dimension and quality that your house is going to be when it's fixed up. You multiply that number by 70% and then you minus out all your repairs. So let, let's talk about that, that math earlier. So that house was worth $100,000, the one that I did the example. So it's worth $100,000 times 70% is $70,000. And remember, it needed $25,000 in repairs. So that means I bought that house for 45 grand. So I buy that house for 45 grand. You know, I put 25 grand into it. So I, there's equity already built in. And at that point, I can flip it or keep it as a rental. So it's all about understanding that max allowable offer formula. And it's it's kind of complicated, but not too bad because you just need to figure out what ARV is and that takes some time. But and then you need to figure out what the rehab costs are and you can get bids and 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 talk to other people and contractors and general contract it out if you want. But those are the ways it's a it's a formula you use to quickly analyze deals to see if they're going to potentially be a deal or not. Oh, incredible. Uh, amazing. So so now that we know that we have to do maximum of allowable offer minus 70 percent minus the repairs then we know what we can come in and offer, right? Um, do you, can you touch a little bit into the ARV, kind of like break it down a little bit for the single family and potentially the smaller and multifamily, see how that works, just so, so or, or, you know, talk about it and maybe point us to a better resource that's a little bit more in depth. Yeah, for the ARVs, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so that after repair value, that is something that it's a known number. You get that by finding recent sales and you can find that on Zillow to a certain degree. You know, the little yellow icon, recent sales. Um, you can talk to real estate agents. They'll go through the tax records and they can tell you what recent sales are because they're in and out of comps every single day. Or you can even yeah. use software like Batch Leads or, or Privy or PropStream, something like that, that has access to the actual MLS data. So you're taking a known commodity, finding... ARVs, there's a little bit of science to it, a little bit of math, a little bit of art, but in general, you just need to find three houses that have recently sold. And there's a lot of public data out there that will allow you to find those. Amazing. Okay. Sounds great. Um, so I want to touch in a little bit, you know, you, you, you touched in about the rehab costs. Sounds like, you know, exactly what these houses are going to need in repairs from someone that's walking into a deal that is getting it at the right price. Um, how does that person look at the deal and find out an estimate that can accurately be the money that he will need to spend in order to make that deal worth more money, roughly in ballpark? Yeah, figuring out repair values is tough. It's one of the very few things that you actually have to do in order to understand a lot of things. You can kind of put X's and O's on papers and learn and how to figure things out. But getting rehab numbers is something you have to actually do, especially because every single house is different. So some good ways to do it are leaning on other investors in the area. Bring another real estate investor, pay them a little bit of money, give them a little bit of the deal or just bring them because they're probably willing to help and walk through the property with them and they'll help you come up with a number. You can also get bids if you put an offer on a contract and have a contingency in there of 10 days, bring in your own contractors, get two or three bids on everything that needs done and add up your numbers and make sure it's where it needs to be, where you can actually make money and make it a good deal. So there's there's a lot that goes into it and you'll learn as you go. But sadly, it's one of those things you actually have to be in it to actually learn. And every house is a little bit different and everybody comes up with a different rehab budget. So just one of those things where I would suggest leaning on other people um, that have already been there, or you can just completely bid it out and get a general contractor to charge you five or 10% of the profit of the actual rehab costs, and then they will do it all for you and they'll give you the numbers. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Sounds like you've done this quite a bit and you know exactly what to do. Um, so um, when it comes to now that you've done the rehab, right, we've got this house, it's worth a hundred thousand dollars and we pay back our private lender and uh, with interest and, what, and, and whatnot. Sometimes there's money that's extra, right? If we did a great job at finding a deal, what do you find that you do with the money that you get extra from the refis? How do you utilize that best so that you can continue to, to grow and scale? Yeah, so you're sometimes going to have extra money. And what usually I do with those on the refinances, I will like put them in an account because guess what? There are times where you'll be short like you won't have enough money. And if I really never want to use any of my own money, which I don't, then I will, uh, you know, be able to, you know, kind of rob from that account. So if, you know, I do 10 of these and, you know, five of them come back where they need to be, three of them come back extra, I make an extra five or 10 grand and then a couple, couple of them come up short. I just take money from that account and make the deals whole so that I can continue to use none of my own money or, you know, none of my like actual personal money. So that's a lot of what I do. Some people, if there's that extra five or 10 grand, they just, they just leave it in the deal. So they have more equity and less of a payment. So they cash a little bit more. So there's a ton of different things you can do with it. The beautiful thing about it is you have the option to do it. And the more you do this, the more you will come across those instances where there's extra money in there. Mm, that's that's amazing. 
Cool. So touching on a little bit of a subject that it's kind of relevant for a lot of people now, which is the New Year's resolution. You know, everybody's setting their goals. And we know from data that a lot of people have failed at their New Year resolutions in the past. And so I want to know your take on the new on, on the way you do New Year's resolution and how how you make sure that you do it so that you're setting yourself up for success. Yeah, I think New Year's resolutions are are good to do, but I don't put a ton of weight in them either way. I have goals for my company, long-term goals. I have yearly goals. I break them down to quarterly, down to monthly, then down to weekly. So what I do is I just completely compartmentalize it down to something I have to do today that's going to move the needle and start that boulder down the hill. So setting up a goal to lose 20 pounds this year or setting up a goal to eat better this year, there's no tangibleness, if that's a word, to them. But what is tangible is saying, I want to lose two pounds this month or a pound this week, whatever that looks like, setting up smaller, more incremental goals that will allow you to see wins right away. So you will gain that momentum, gain that confidence and be okay with, you know, not losing 20 pounds overnight, like most people want to do. So if you're able to kind of shorten those goals and see the wins and be okay with the fact that it's a short-term goal, they will eventually add to that long-term goal is a great way to look at it. So many people look at the bigger picture and then they never get there because there's no like stepping stones. If you start the stepping stones and start it small and build from there, you're much more likely to be successful. Mm, that's an amazing key. So you guys got to break down your goals into smaller steps so that it's easily tangible and, and actionable, right? Um, so I want to touch on a little bit about, you know, real estate is a lot of, it's a, it's a people business. So we, us real estate investors have to talk a lot with realtors and sellers in order to get deals done. And I just want to get your your uh, your opinion on this with realtors, how, how is it that you best structure the deals where the, the realtor wants to work with you and, and, and is preferring you over other sellers? Yeah, so the, the, the best thing is it's going to be something that's going to take time. You develop a relationship with the agent outside of just business, coffees, dinners, um, you know, drinks, whatever it is, develop a relationship with them because a good agent is going to have multiple investors they bring them to. Once they bring you a deal, finally, after probably a few months of, you know, kind of talking with them and courting them, they bring you the deal. You make sure to be professional. You make sure to give an offer. You make sure to explain your offer and you just be easy to deal with. They want the easy button. That, that's why they're bringing you the deal. The ones that, you know, that are in great condition that the eight that, you know, investors have nothing to do with, you don't help them at all because you're going to be less than what they can get on the market. But you're helping them out of a kind of a messy, uh, annoying deal that they would have to list and, you know, do showings and give concessions and credits and won't pass code and all these kind of things. So you're helping them. So you need to be professional once you get sent that opportunity. And then you need to make sure that you're, you know, following up with them and just, you know, being around them as much as possible, because a good agent is going to come across a few of these distressed properties. And you just you just have to treat it like a business and treat them, um, you know, with respect, because there's going to be a bunch of there are, you know, real estate is known as a thing that builds wealth. And the real estate is known as a thing that, um, you know, a lot of people jump into when the market's hot, they're going to deal with a lot of knuckleheads. So if you can separate yourself from that, and continue continually be there for them, and help them out of sticky situations and give them fair offers, they're going to continue to bring you deals. And then they'll tell the real estate friends and they'll tell their friends and your network will just exponentially grow just by you doing what you say you're going to do. Gotcha. That, that's an amazing uh, advice there. And and you do, from what I heard in the conversation, you do do some marketing where you're actually reaching out to sellers yourself. 
and you're putting deals together. Um, what have you seen that has been a key factor in building rapport with these sellers in order for them to, to, to sell their property to you, even perhaps if they weren't thinking about it or, or, you know, just, just to work with you and in general. So when you're in a home with a distressed seller, it's not about them or yeah. So when you, it is about them. So the difference is, so when, when you're in a home with a distressed seller, it's not just about the property. It's about the actual person that you're trying to buy the house from. They're in a sticky situation. There's a reason they're bringing you their house and not listing it on the open market. There's some type of stress going on with them in their personal life. Either they're going into foreclosure, they're behind on their taxes. You know, they're inheriting the house and it was a sticky situation. Or the house is super outdated and needs a ton of work. Or they're getting, you know... They're having to move and they're, you know, having to relocate. Whatever it is, it's a sticky situation. That's why you're there. So you need to understand that. And you don't need to be walking around the house saying, oh, look at that. That's gross. Or there's a crack in the basement floor or, oh, the smell in here is disgusting. They know all that. They, they live there. But what you need to do is you need to connect with them. Um, you know, don't try to point out all these issues with the house so you can justify your low ball offer. No, explain to them what you do, how you can benefit them, try to connect with them and help try to solve their issue. We buy a lot of houses that we're not the highest offer on because we solve the actual issue that the client is going through. You know, do they need to stay there a couple of weeks afterwards to move out their stuff? So we can get that legal document signed that says, yes, you can stay here for a couple weeks, get out your stuff after closing. There's no rush. Or do they need to close very, very quickly because they need the cash now? Okay, well, we can work on that, but here's going to be your offer. And we explain why we came to our offer. Most of the time, if you sit down to them and explain the max liable offer form that I talked about earlier, hey, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Whoever, your house is worth this. We think we're going to put this much into it. And after holding costs and fees and everything, we're going to make about this much. This is how we came to this offer. If you phrase it that way, a lot of times you're going to get met with, that's not where we wanted to be, but I get it. And, you know, no, thank you. Or that's not quite where we wanted to be. Uh, but I see that those are the numbers are the numbers. And let me talk to my husband or wife and we'll see if we can get this done. Like you're explaining it. It's not this hidden thing where you're trying to screw them over with contingencies and all these little things in the contract that's going to come back and, and fees that are going to bite them at the end. Be transparent. Explain why you got to your numbers and how you got to your numbers. Explain how much money you're going to make. And most of the time they're like, yeah. You know, I understand you have to make a profit too. Uh, this is a business and, and we'll, we'll work through it. So if you approach it that way, you're much higher to kind of break through those walls and, you know, actually get the deal done at maybe even not the highest price. They could probably go somewhere else to get it higher, but if they trust you and you explain it, they're going to probably go with you. That's amazing. I, I love it. So being transparent is the, def, the, the definition of being a good real estate investor when you're dealing with sellers. Um, and I just wanted to touch base on, you know, your goal is to, you know, make a billion dollars from what I not make, but like buy, you know, a billion in real estate. I just want to know, like, based on your long term vision and where you stand right now, like, where do you see things going for yourself? And, and where do you see your exit plan? Like whether you're going to sell off this portfolio or whether you're going to keep it, you know, pass it down through generations. Kind of give me a little bit of the way you've talked through that with yourself so that you know what you're doing. Yeah, so 
the biggest thing for me in trying to, so the three biggest goals are owning a, a billion dollar company valuation, owning a billion dollars in real estate and owning an MBA team. So in order to do that, you have to own assets for a long period of time. Wealth is created through equity and assets. And you get that equity by either holding that asset for a long time and allowing time and you know product and value increases and debt pay downs, or you buy a lot of assets. And what we've done is we've done both. We bought a lot and plan to hold them for a long period of time. So those are kind of our long-term goals. It's not to sell much and it's not to get out is to hold these for a long time in order to reach those goals because those are big numbers so that's our goal but not everybody's goal is to own that much i, I do think it's important to have some type of long-term goal to shoot for and you know kind of attack it however you can attack it and, and ours is such a big number that the only way to attack it is to hold and grow and scale and continue to grow every single day yeah yeah that sounds great now, just curious on that, um, the billion dollar company that you're looking to to have in valuation, is that something related to real estate or is this something else that you've been working on that you're? Yeah, I think that'll be a combination. Like I have four companies right now, um, you know, a property management company that manages and acquires my rentals, um, a flipping company that, you know, flips through houses a year, my education company, Faster Freedom, and then like an investing company that does like have an e-com store in there. We loan some money out, um, just a few different um, investment classes outside of real estate. So I don't know what's going to get me to that billion, but it's probably going to have to be new companies and more companies and acquisitions of companies and things like that. That's cool. And, and just for, for the record here, which, uh, which, which team do you want to own? So the MBA team in St. Louis is going to probably, I would guess, be an expansion team. I don't think that we're going to be able to attract or pull any team away from any other market. But my goal is to make St. Louis a better city, a more desirable city, a, a more, you know, a city that people are moving to, like Tech Hub, whatever that would look like, to garner the attention of the MBA and potentially an expansion team. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that. But, yeah, that's kind of the, the thoughts there. Cool, cool. That's exciting, man. I love it. So. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the apartment buildings that you've worked on because I've seen you had some deals where, where you've done apartment buildings. What what do you see is the difference between you know apartment buildings and single family uh, rentals, and how is it that you're approaching it so that you're you're scaling faster and you're and you're and you're you're getting that uh, that higher net worth through through apartment investing. Yeah, so apartments are, uh, you know, they're they're similar, but they're, I mean, they're they're a residential real estate asset, so they're different than single families, but they're they're pretty similar. Um, you know, I I approach them, you know, a little bit differently than single families, but there there's a lot of pros to multifamilies, like you mentioned. There's the scalability; you control the value of that asset. Single families are based on the market. If the market's good, your single family house is going to go up. If the market's bad, it's going to go down. Fortunately, it goes up about 90% of the time. But when it comes to apartment complexes, the value is based on the net income. And I control the variables of the net income to a certain degree. There's my, you know, taxes, my mortgages, all that. So my expenses are somewhat set, but I can get efficient with expenses and utilize technology and do things like that and be efficient with maintenance and lower my actual expenses. But then I can also do the other side of that and increase my top line by charging, you know, closer to market rent or, or doing different things to get more rent by turning, you know, we've done this on our uh, 29 unit. We turned three of the units from long-term to, to midterm rentals and we're getting way more rent on a midterm rental than a long-term rental. So our net income 
went up because we got more rent. So therefore the value of the building increased. So you're able to force appreciation is what it's called on apartments and things like that, because you control the net income to a certain degree if you're doing things the right way. And I'm not going to buy an apartment complex unless I can increase the net income, unless it's low on rent or I can do things like that. So I'm not buying things at market rent, market price. So the only way I'm going to buy is if I do have that upside potential. Gotcha. Okay. So, so perfect. So you, you look at an apartment building based on the NOI that you can increase, right? And, and that's how you make your money. And so commonly, you know, you mentioned rent increases is, is one way to increase the net operating income. What other ways have you found that you've been able to increase the NOI of an apartment building to higher heights? Um, a lot of it is getting efficient with expenses. A lot of these mom and pop apartment complexes, the owner goes and collects all the rent in cash or in checks. And, you know, they uh, they, you know, send out, uh, you know, a maintenance person every once in a while to fix stuff. It's like when we when we have it, we have like we communicate with the tenant. And if there's an emergency, we're out there right away. But if it's like, hey, this light bulb in my closet is out, we're going to send a, a maintenance tech out there to just take care of all of the non-emergency stuff. Like at one time, we take care of it very timely. But rather than having a, a maintenance guy go there every day to change light bulbs, he's going there once a week to change all the light bulbs, tighten up the toilet, fix a, you know, weather seal at the bottom of a door, things like that. So they get efficient there. So we're spending less money on maintenance, but we're taking better care of the tenant, especially than most of these mom and pop things. But then also they pay online. Um, you know, they, they, they all direct deposit or they, you know, use a credit card online. So they we're able to not have to send somebody out there to go collect rent and all those type of things. So we just utilize technology and efficiencies to lower that bottom line. And the goal is always to take incredible care of the tenants. We, we love our tenants. We're, we're landlords, not slumlords. So we like to have great relationships with them, but uh, you can be efficient and have, you know, take better care of them for less money than most, um, most people like any business. If you can utilize technology and resources to create efficiencies, your, your profit will go up. It's not the exact same as any business in any industry. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I noticed from this conversation that we're having, you're very passionate about real estate. Tell me, what is it that you do that keeps you passionate and keeps you super focused on on this goal that you guys have created for yourselves so that so that you're always, you know, coming in with high energy and, and super, um, you know, a sharp mind, you know, to overcome any obstacle that, that comes on. I think I just have a drive and a passion to win and to be challenged and overcome those challenges. Like there's so many challenges that come along with growing company and buying real estate and growing and having the goals that I have. The fact that I've seen some traction and I've seen what it can do for myself, as well as my students, as well as the people in my influence, as well as people in my community and in the building that I actually work in and own. The fact that I've seen what real estate can do just kind of motivates me and fires me up every single day. I've seen it so many times over and over again. And there's something about impacting people and helping people and creating more for people that is that is more addicting than, you know, any other type of whether it be sports or vacation or whatever else hobbies I could have. I have my family and I have my businesses and I'm able to get so much enjoyment out of both of those things. I don't have time or even the actual like desire to have a ton of extra hobbies outside of it. So I, I'm not looking for fun or validation or for some type of like passion project outside of my family and my businesses. So that's why I get so much passion out of my family, and my businesses, because I'm not always looking around for something else. My cup gets filled up with those things enough that that's all I want to do. That's all I have time to do, but that's okay with me. That's great. So on a topic that's relevant to this, um, how do you schedule for fulfillment? 
what's kind of like the secret sauce? How do you put your day together so that you're 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 hitting all the all the cylinders and you're and you're making sure you're firing at the the the, the highest capacity? I wish that every day I was firing at the highest capacity and everything was knocking out perfectly and everything was running on the right cylinders, but that's not always the case. I have a, you know, 46 employees and a pretty good businesses that are pretty steady, but I'm still figuring it out as I go every single day. Some days I yeah. knock out a ton of stuff and I'm knocking out all these dominoes and things are happening and I'm feeling on top of the world. And some days I'll drive home and be like, what the hell did I do today? I have no idea. I didn't move any needles. I didn't move any boulders. It was just a waste of a day. And that's just life. There, there's wins and there's losses. Yeah. There's ups and there's downs. So just being okay with that and understanding that not every day I'm going to move a mountain, but just being intentional and focused on what I'm doing has been huge for me. When I'm at the office, I'm at the office. This is what I do. This is what I think about. And this is where I'm at. When I go home, shut that off for a while, spend time with my family, be intentional and focused there. And then in the evenings after, you know, the kiddos go down and there's a little bit of downtime, I can relax and watch a show or I can get back in the grind and do a couple of things to move the needle. So being your own boss and being able to do what you want, when you want, because you, I'm financially able to do that because of the things I've built just allows so much freedom to kind of pick and choose and be agile when I need to be agile. Mm, that's amazing. So on the topic of building a team, you know, you have 46 employees, you know, how do you build a team? How do you find them? How do you hire them? How do you train them? You know, what positions do you do? You know, for the people that are out there that, you know, really want some some uh, some guidance on how to build a team, what can you say to these people from your experience now in, in, in being a business owner? So have so so how I have built teams is not how most people build teams. Most people say separate family and business, separate friends and business. And I've done the exact opposite of that. My business partner and everything has been my best friend for 20 years. His brother-in-law runs one of our companies. We have friends that I've known since I was four and five years old that we work with. So we lean heavily on the friendship, the loyalty, everything that you get, the culture fits and people that we know and trust and loved over the years, as opposed to just randomly bring people in to have the right skills. We look at it as we want to get the right person in the right role. I'm not going to have one of my friends that's in accounting do sales and vice versa, but assuming it's somewhat of a fit for their personality and their skill set, we'll teach them the skills. We get the loyalty of years and years of friendship or family that they will run through walls for us and with us, as opposed to somebody just get on Indeed that has the skill set because they checked a few boxes on their resume. So we lean heavily into that family and friends, which can be dangerous. It can be kind of scary, but if you have the right expectations and you're a good leader and it's the right person and you set things up the right way from the beginning, it can be very, very fruitful and it has done that for us. We have, we have COOs, so we have operation managers over all four of our companies. Companies that run the companies. They do the day-to-day, -day, everybody reports to them. Luke's and I just kind of are at the top and, and plug in where we're needed to be plugged in at that current time and help out where we're, needed, where we're needed to help out and work on the culture and the overall feel and the vibe of everything and have that growth mindset that's pushing everybody every single day where everybody else is kind of in the weeds. Hey, real quick, guys, boost your productivity with time boxing. Even big names like Elon Musk swear by it. We've got a cool sheet to help you out. Grab yours at bit.ly slash timebox sheet. If you don't like it, there's a 30 day money back guarantee. Got it. So you touched on a very important uh, aspect that I'd like to dive in deeper. And that is the culture. From, from what I've read personally, I know that big companies like BlackRock and Blackstone focus heavily on culture. And I've even heard that the founders spent up to 30% of their time on culture. Now, I'm not saying this is what happens in your company, but can you give us a little bit of 
what kind of is the culture in your company and how you're building it so that other one so other people can look at and uh and learn from your uh experience yeah so we actually live and breathe the culture a lot of companies talk about it a lot of companies write it on the wall a lot of companies have it written you know in the bathrooms or the lunchrooms we actually do it and live it every single day and we have it on the wall and we have it written places, but we actually live through it. Like we, when we hire people, we hire them through our culture and through our core values. We look at all the core values and we make sure they fit every single box. And we talk with them throughout the hiring process. And then unfortunately, when we have to let people go, we let them go because they didn't meet a core value. Like in order to underperform at the role, they're going to have to really underperform for us not to be able to coach them up on that specific task or that specific objective. But not meeting the core values is, is, is a game breaker for us. So if they're not meeting the core values or certain ones for a certain extended period of time, we can't coach them out of that. We let them go and everybody on the team knows why we let them go. So we, we live through it. We hire through it. We fire through it. So we're actually living it. And it's a huge reason why I think we're the successful as we are and that we have people lining out of outside of the doors to come work for us because they know that's how we do things and we do things the right way. And we're not just talking about it. We're actually doing it. We don't, we, we're not just that we don't do about it. We, or we're not about it. We actually live about it. Yeah. 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 You, you don't just talk about it. You live about it. Gotcha. Exactly. So, there you go. So let me ask you this, if you don't mind, what are your core values and how is the, the, the higher and firing process like the, the use that you, you see through? You know, so that we have an understanding of what we could do in our business when we're building, you know, our, our, um, our, our empire, you know, our, our business. Yeah. So let me, so, so we, we had core values. So we had core values that we've had around for a while that got a little bit, um, a little bit uh, stale, I would say, but uh, we, we kind of recently sat down and we went through, um, we went through kind of like our core values and exactly what they are. So um, our core values are um, mindset of abundance. We, everybody, there's enough there for everybody. People are stabbing each other in the back or, you know, getting around each other. It's um, to try to make a little bit extra money and deal is not, is not okay for us. Unity, we're all working together towards a common goal. Integrity, we always do the right thing no matter the situation. We're always wanting to, um, you know, work together towards towards that goal. Um, there's love and respect. We always love each other and respect each other and lead with that and then drama free. So we have we have these, you know, actual values that we want people to know and see. We give out quarterly core value awards. We give out one award at our yearly uh, Christmas party we're having or holiday party we're having here in, a, in about a, a week. We're giving out one one award and it's the core value award. So we put it on a pedestal and we could constantly talk about it every week, every month, every quarter, and then it's throughout the hiring and firing process. That's amazing. I'm, I'm happy to hear you got some award going out from your core values. That, that sounds like you, you kind of gamified the culture aspect of your business and, and you're rewarding people. And it, I mean, it's a great game to play from what it sounds like. So it is I want to sure. touch, I want to touch base on, uh, there's, there's now the coaching, you know, all of this stuff that you do for people. I'm going to touch down, you know, touch base on this, you know, um, what, what is, what is some of the results, you know, that you have been helping someone achieve that you can highlight that someone in the audience could feel like they could be in their shoes and they could be the next one. Yeah. So, um, I just got a, a email on a deal falling through. Sorry. Say that one again. 
Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. So it um, happens, man. Uh, I got a fire to put out as soon as we're done, but keep going. What was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh um what I was saying is, you know, you you're obviously coaching and you're teaching people through social media now how to do these kinds of things that you're doing. And so what I want to highlight right now is I want to highlight one of your students' um success story. You know, I wanna I wanna I wanna have you tell me a little bit about how you've helped some of the people in your community achieve the success that they're looking for and and what kind of story they're having so that someone in the audience could feel like this can be me too you know for sure yeah no that that's a good one um so like i mean we have 1600 um people inside of our community now that own over 200 million in real estate so the numbers show that we know how to guide people we know how to show people how to do it we have all the resources all the calls all the tools all the calculators all the hand holding all the connections that you're ever going to need all the funding that you're ever going to need to actually make it happen and a perfect example is one of um the, the gentleman's name's Kurt out of Kansas he was a he was a high school teacher um, I think a PE teacher in high school. And um, he got involved in the community because he had three rentals. One of them um, negatively cash flowed and it wiped out the other two. So he had three rentals, one cash flow or one didn't cash flow, two did, but he was breaking even and it was a pain. Well, in the first yeah. 11 months of him being inside the community, he bought 36 rental properties. He bought them all from everything we talked to him. He was in the Facebook groups, doing everything we told him to do. So he he's over 40 rentals now. He quit his job as a high school teacher and is doing this all day, every day. And the high school actually hired him back as a consultant to teach some of the kids about real estate investing and, and ways to, you know, you know, you know, do things outside of just the norms, which is really cool. The high school did that. But I mean, there's so many oh, wow. examples there's almost every single day now in the group, in the Facebook group, somebody's posting about buying their first deal or their next deal. So it's a couple years old now. There's enough students there's enough members in there that are active that we're pushing that we're seeing win after win after win after win there's you know the fact that there's over 200 million in there tells you that there's a lot of people that own 30 40 50 rentals there's people that own a few so there's the whole gambit of people in every state every area um you know most cities have multiple members in it now that they're they're all working together like there's 200 members in texas so there's a ton of yeah. support that goes along with everything and there's just countless wins yeah yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, I want to touch base on something that that you probably experienced quite a bit. And, and it's, you know, as becoming a pub and as an influencer in the real estate space, you probably, you know, talk to what all the a lot of other influencers in the space, you know, what is the way that you have been able to connect with these other influencers, and maybe collaborate or build relationships in a way that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a win win for the both, you know, for both of you. Yeah, so the best ways are just been like kind of on social media, just connecting, shooting a DM kind of thing or seeing somebody's content saying you like it or vice versa. Having on podcasts is a good way to connect with people. And then the biggest way is like joining like masterminds. Like, you know, there, there's masterminds yeah. um, and, you know, community events that cost money. I spend about 100 grand a year in masterminds between travel and like fees. But at, in those yeah. rooms are other investors and other people that are willing to do that and spend the time and understand the value of spending your money to level up. Uh, which is what all yeah. my community does and what the most successful people I know. I don't know one successful person that doesn't spend money to level up. So I do that. I don't, I walk the talk and talk the talk. So that's the main place I meet these people, but I do need to be more intentional about it. I'm in the Midwest, St. Louis. I'm not like in Vegas and Cali and uh, Florida where like most of these, a lot of these people are. So I just kind of do my yeah. own thing and occasionally um, do speaking events here and there, but I do need to ramp that up a little bit, but um, I'm just, I'm just on social media more to help people and to fill my funnel up at the top then then collaborate with with others cool 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 and 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 um touching a little bit you know this could be the last question we we go on 
um, it, you know, currently you have a family, right? And so you have big goals and ambitions. Um, how do you manage your family time and your, your work time? Like how, how, how's your wife, like, how's, how are you been able to, to make it so that, that you have, you know, a successful marriage, you know, a successful family, a successful business and all this together, because a lot of people, you know, they're looking to do that as well. And, and they're wondering, you know, what is the, the, the secret sauce that, that you got, that you got going on that, that's able to keep things together and, and keep things working and, and going well. Yeah. The biggest thing for like my home life and work life is just communication and like setting expectations with intentionality. Like at first I wasn't super good at it. I would be working late or I'd be distracted on my phone or computer when I was home. But the minute I communicated, Hey, I'm going to need to work a little extra tonight or tonight we're good. I don't need to, you know, work any extra. And I was intentional about that. And when I was there, I was intentional about being present was, was completely, uh, you know, 180 from what it was. Cause it wasn't always this way. And I feel like it's always a struggle. I feel like so many people are searching for work-life balance, like it's a destination, like it's a noun, and it's not. It's a verb. It's an act. It's something you're constantly doing. That's balancing. You don't just stand there. When you're balancing on anything, you're, you're adjusting, adjusting here, there. You go a little bit too far that way, so you go that way. So adjusting and, and understanding that it's always something to pursue and it's an action, I think has been huge for me. Everybody thinks it's this place where you're going to get this zen work-life balance, and then the work's done. You do that and you're going to get out of whack one way or another. So just knowing that it's okay if one's slipping a little bit. And as long as I'm intentional about fixing that slip and shifting my weight a little bit to go back the other way um, and having that intentionality and communication with with my people I work with, as well as my wife at home, that that's the way it is, has made a big difference. So the minute I got over thinking that it was like a final destination um, really, really helped everybody's understanding and perspective of it. Amazing. Amazing. And, and, um, I would say, um, how were you able to, to build this, um, this empire that you have, you know, like what kind of was like the, if you have a checklist or whatever that you picked with, with your wife, you know, when you were, you know, choosing a partner for life that, that allowed you to, you know, to, to have what you have now, obviously communicating intentionally and all that. Yeah, I think it was, we didn't have these goals at first. Like, again, I didn't, I didn't, we got, I got married right out of uh, college pretty much. I didn't, didn't have goals to do all this. I think just through um, life happening and, you know, it it seems quick, but it's not when you're in it, right? You know, eight years is a long time. Um, So it, it, it seems quick, but it's not when you look back, it is, but when you're in it every single day, it's a slow moving thing. So just having those talks and conversations and, and seeing what it's like to have a little bit of extra money. We donate a ton, you know, I don't brag about my money a ton on social media, but we, we, you know, we, we have more time to do what we want when we want. Like I just bought tickets for a comedy show in St. Louis um, in June, Nate Bargatze, um, me and my wife really like him. And it was it was cool, it was nice. There were some sold out shows and I just bought the most expensive ticket I could, closest to the stage I could and bought, got the parking and the VIP didn't even think about it. So um, it's just yeah. the fact that we are able to see those tangible things of having a little bit of extra money and not being worried about spending, you know, a thousand dollars on one night at to see a, a comedian just makes it more enjoyable. So I think the fact that she sees those things, because she's not materialistic, she doesn't care about her navigator that she drives. She doesn't care about our house. She doesn't care about any of that, really. She just wants me to be present. And I am more present now than ever. I'm having intentionality behind that. But 
the little bit of materialisticness that kind of leaks in when you can do things and not worry about <laughs> money and do what you want when you want and and you know be able to buy or be able to Airbnb a really nice house on the beach and invite both of our parents and pay for them to stay with us and things like that, that like money can buy. Um, it can just help buy experiences, I think. And that's more important than just a nicer car or a bigger house. Amazing. Amazing. Love it. So Sam, where can people find you on social media? You know, and, and real quick, what does faster freedom mean, you know, for the people that are listening? Yeah. So um, Faster Freedom is just like, so my flipping company's name is Faster House. Like we flip houses and Faster Freedom is um, kind of along those same lines. So that's kind of why we went with that name. But in general, um, you know, they can find me at Sam Faster Freedom. My name's Sam, obviously Faster Freedom, the company on any social media. I'm on, on all of them. Um, whatever platform you're on the most, make sure to shoot me a follow. There are scam accounts on most platforms. Don't mm -hmm. contact or interact with any of them that don't have the blue check mark. I will never DM you and ask you for crypto or try to take your money. Um, so I would never cold DM anybody. So if you have to DM me for me to respond. So anyways, that that's a huge part about it. Um, just find me on social media. If you're interested in the community, the mentorship, all that stuff, we can gladly talk. I can send you some some resources and, and tools to help. But in general, I tell most people just follow me on social media, see if you can learn a little bit and, and get the vibe. And then we can kind of progress from there if you want. Okay. Okay. Sounds great, Sam. So thank you. We really appreciate you coming on. And uh, this has been quite the hour here. I think a lot of people have gotten a lot of value from it. And this is definitely an episode that they can watch over again because there's a lot of things that we spoke about. And um, check out that training that Sam talked about. So, um, Sam, I want to wish you, you know, the greatest day ever and uh, want to, you know, connect on another time. OK. Awesome, man. Sounds good. I appreciate it. A-List Nation, take advantage of those willing to connect who have been there, done that. Please act on the value shared today. By joining us, you're building yourself to deliver lasting value. Keep up that A-List energy and until next time.